0: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today?
1: I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. Thank you so much for asking. I feel like our listeners are doing fantastic as well, because if they clicked on this episode, they know that we're about to speak to a really intelligent, articulate, amazing human being. But as long as we're talking about articulating feelings, Tim, how are you? I'm
0: doing great. Thanks a lot for asking. Yeah, I'm excited to bring our audience this conversation that we had with Sean Wilson of Dream. Dream.org. And Sean
1: brings to the conversation his experience being incarcerated for 17 years. And upon his release, he became the organizing director at Dream.org. And he's also serving as commissioner on the governor's Juvenile Justice Commission, Wisconsin State Advisory Group. And he serves as an independent forum to discuss juvenile justice policy issues because his major platform is the lack of rehabilitation when individuals are incarcerated and he even says it in this interview they're going to get out at some point and we need to be ready to welcome them back to be a productive member of society I love it when we talk to people like this who become our new friends and educate us in this way and I think that the audience is going to get a whole lot out of this conversation and I feel like this isn't going to be the last time we have Sean on and Tim this conversation is great for the public feed but the public is going to get some commercials in here and if they didn't want to get commercials for this episode and all of the other episodes that we do including our show missing and Dark Valley there's got to be a place where they can go
0: well yes our listeners can now subscribe to Crawl Space Premium on Apple Podcasts But if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product there. It's $4.99 a month. You get ad-free releases, early episodes, and our weekly bonus show that everyone loves. And you also get ad-free episodes of Missing and Dark Valley. So make sure to uh, go check that out.
1: And just a couple of quick pieces of housekeeping here. We're very excited that we're going to be at the second annual Obsessed Fest. Tim, this is super exciting for us. We're going to have several panels, plus a meet-and-greet It's going to be taking place in Dallas, Texas, October 20th to the 22nd. And where can people go to get their passes to see the festivities?
0: Well, our listeners can go to ObsessedNetwork.com to get their tickets. It is going to be a great time. I can't wait, Lance.
1: Huge thank you to the Obsessed Network for inviting us back again. Really looking forward to seeing everybody. One more time for this amazing event. And Tim, there's going to be another amazing event that is to support our nonprofit that we are in with Bruce Maitland, Private Investigations for the Missing. The first annual 5K Run for the Missing will be taking place Sunday, October 8th. If you want more information, there'll be a link in the show notes or you can go to runsignup.com and search Run for the Missing.
0: All right, everyone, please follow us on social media at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. And we're going to cut to commercial here. We'll be right back with Sean Wilson. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Sean Wilson, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm
2: great. How are you guys doing?
1: We're doing really well today. Very excited to have you on the show. Right before we hit record, you had said that your wife had looked us up when you said, hey, I'm going to be on this show Crawl Space. And you said something that was really cool uh, that I think we need to have the listeners here as well. So again, thank you for joining us here on Crawlspace. You're not a vampire, but we did recently talk about vampires, which you listened to. Hence, yep. your wife's comment.
2: Absolutely, um, yeah. My wife just didn't. She didn't understand like the connection between the work that I did and like your podcast and one of your recent episodes. You all were talking about vampires, and so she looked up the podcast and looked up you know some of the conversations you all have, and she was like, "Help me understand the connection." And I was like, "This podcast also speak with." advocates and folks from various backgrounds and experiences. So it's no different with me being on on the podcast. And as I was just sharing with you both momentarily, I think we have to be open to having conversations with people from all walks of life and all types of experiences, because we never know where a solution to a problem that we may be facing will come from. It may come from, as you often hear, you know, solutions and relationships come from the strangest bedfellows. And so I think sitting down and having a conversation with you, we we don't know what could come from the conversation or what type of collaboration can follow this um, podcast or what your listeners may hear They may may prompt them to do some research on their own and realize that there's an intersection in the work that I do and something that they may be dealing with or may trying to figure out how to address an issue that they may be encountering in their life.
0: Absolutely. And we speak about the justice system a lot and sometimes uh, quite often we complain about it, but we don't talk about what we could do to make it better or just ideas even to improve it. Honestly, it depresses me when I when I start to think about it because I feel like we're so far behind on making that change that I don't even know where to start. So I'm so glad to speak with you. I would love to hear a little bit about who you are and what your background is.
2: My name is Sean Wilson, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a brother, son, community member, and concerned citizen who is directly impacted by the criminal legal system. I am someone who, over 20 years ago, was sent to prison um, at the age of 17. And while incarcerated, looking around rehabilitation, reform, healing, restoration or restorative justice, That environment didn't bring up any of those feelings or any of those thoughts within me. This was an environment or this is an environment that says to society, when an individual violates the law, we, the justice system, will mete out a punishment in the form of a period of confinement in a correctional setting. And in this correctional setting, they are going to be rehabilitated. They are going to be reformed. They are going to be healed and they are going to return back to society better off than they came in. However, what society doesn't know is this is an environment that is sensory depriving. This is a environment that is a microcosm of general society. This is an environment that exacerbates trauma. This is an environment that is not doing any of the things or keeping the promise that it has made to us as taxpayers. Because as taxpayers, we're paying anywhere from $30,000 to $200,000 to cage an individual in a closet, essentially, for an indiscretion. And so if this was a, a environment that was doing the things that it promises society that it's going to do, then I wouldn't be as critical as I am of the environment or of the system. But it's not doing or keeping the promise that it has made to taxpayers in society at large. When I found myself in Green Bay Correctional Institution, which is a maximum facility in Wisconsin, I said to myself, I was going to come home and expose this system for what it is and the harm that it does. That I was going to do everything in my power to become a better person, that I was taking accountability for my action, and that I was going to spend the next 17 years of my imprisonment becoming a better human being so that upon my release, I can be an asset to my community, to myself, to my family and society at large. And so coming up now on seven years of being free, I believe that I have kept that promise to myself and I've also kept that promise to the men that I was surrounded by. I've kept that promise to my grandmother and my mom and the folks that I was in communication with while I was incarcerated. Like, hey, this system is corrupt. This system is all about incapacitation. It's not about healing you of the trauma that you're coming in with it's not all it's not about addressing the substance the substance abuse that you've um engaged in um while you were in in the free world it's all about incapacitation it's all about depriving your senses of natural light it's all about depriving your senses of greenery of seeing the the the, the trees blowing the wind it's all about preventing you society from seeing the harm that it is causing and so as someone who has gone through this system and spent 17 years in this system i have a responsibility and a job to expose it for what it is but more so than expose it for what it is provide viable solutions on how we can do things more humanely how we can do things more justly and that's what i am doing in my role Here at Dream.org, a national organization that are working on climate justice, criminal justice and tech equity. We are working with any and everyone that has innovative solutions that's going to reduce the footprint of mass incarceration, that's going to reduce the carbon footprint and also create pathways of employment for black and brown communities all across this country.
1: I just went online and ordered myself a Sean Wilson for president t-shirt. So that'll be coming in soon (laughs) uh, because that was was amazing. I want to back up just a little bit. You were young when you were incarcerated and you're at an age where most adolescents are just beginning to discover education and learning and, and life and trying to absorb everything around them. How much of a shift was that for you when you were incarcerated? And when did you start educating yourself in prison? When did you start realizing, like, while I'm in here, education is probably the most important thing I need to survive?
2: So growing up, you know, my grandmother was very, very big on education. I was raised by my grandmother because my my mom, she was experiencing life. I went to some of the best schools in the state of Wisconsin, which afforded me scholarships academically as well as athletically. And so going into prison, I was already an intelligent young man. However, I gave in to peer pressure in poor decision-making, as young people do, as 17-year-olds, as teenagers do. We make dumb decisions. We do dumb things. And we all do it just to be a part of the cool crowd or just to be looked upon as being cool. And so I was that 17-year-old kid that made a dumb mistake. And as a result of my dumb mistake, the criminal legal system, the judge looked upon me and said, hmm, you've been living for 17 years. What I'm going to do is give you a 50-year sentence, 17 of which you will serve in a confined environment. And so in my mind, as I begin to reflect and do the internal work while incarcerated, I said to myself, how can a jurist doctor look at me as a 17-year-old kid and say, I'm going to give you the same amount of time in prison that you've walked upon the earth. Help me understand that. And so it was in those moments of reflection, it was in those introspective moments that I said to myself, this is a miscarriage of justice. This is an injustice. And I need to do everything in my power to not allow this system to swallow me up, to make me bitter, to make me angry, to make me engage in behavior that is not conducive to my growth, that is not conducive to my well-being or the well-being of others. Instead, I'm going to transform myself for the better. I'm going to become a humanizer. And I'm going to humanize the stories of individuals who have similar experiences as mine, and not only similar experiences as mine, but also who are inclined to making poor decisions. We all, as a human family, we're all inclined to making poor decisions, consciously and unconsciously. Many of us go out and have a drink with our friends, and we get behind the wheel of a car and don't realize that we may have drinking too many beers and we run into someone and we may take that person's life. That was a poor decision that we made. It wasn't malicious. What the courts often do is say, you know, you shouldn't have been drinking and driving. For that, I'm going to send you away for the rest of your life. In my opinion, That is a misappropriation of justice in that scenario. What has to happen is what caused this person to get in this vehicle, drive under the influence, knowing that these are the possible outcomes of that action. And it always go back to a poor decision. It doesn't automatically go back to this person maliciously got in his vehicle, knowing that they were under the influence of some substance and ran into this vehicle maliciously, intending to take another human being's life. That is not the process there. The process is that they made a poor decision. And so deal with that that situation accordingly. It was in that cell over a period of 17 years that I just went through a process of better understanding the system, better understanding human nature, that process that has allowed me to come home and really provide insight to curious minds and not only curious minds but system actors who continue to behave in a way that is harmful not only to the individuals that are coming in front of them but even to their own selves. Because that has to do something to you as a judge, as a prosecutor, as a lawyer. It has to do something to you when you look down at another human being and consider them disposable. That has to do something to you. And if it doesn't, then you're a psychopath in a robe.
1: Okay. Yeah. So you said the system actors who are put in a place to make these decisions that will impact the person who's in front of them. Then you said the prosecutor, the judges, maybe elaborate a little bit more on that. Like, Who else are we talking about in in the system actors category?
2: Well, primarily the judge and the prosecutor. Those are the two most powerful figures in the criminal legal system. The prosecutor makes the decision to charge you. So Lance, you were driving under the influence. You ran into Tim and, you know, bruised Tim up and damaged his car because you drove under the influence last. Guess what? I as the judge, I'm going to give you a year in prison. I don't have a conversation with Tim. I don't ask Tim all of the pertinent questions. Hey, do you want this guy to go to prison? Tim may say, hey, the guy screwed up my vehicle. I just want my car fixed and I want my doctor bill paid. That's it. That's all. I understand he made a dumb mistake. He shouldn't have did it. But hey, I don't want the guy to go to prison for an entire year removing him. if I, I don't know if you're a father, Lance, but you may be a father. You may be a husband. You may be the breadwinner. And so removing you for a year significantly impacts your household, your community. And if you are an executive in your your company, if you are the boss and other folks are dependent upon you for their living, you just impacted thousands of people by deciding that you, Lance, are deserving of one year in prison for this poor decision that you made. And so when I refer to system actors, I'm referring more so to the judge and the prosecutor, because the prosecutor can say, hey, I'm going to charge you or I'm going to give you a reduction. I'm going to reduce your charge and I'm only going to recommend a couple of months of probation or I'm only going to recommend community service, not immediately jump to the punitive of time away from your family, your community, etc."
0: Well, I say throw the book at Lance. <laughs> I mean, if i have a choice <laughs> if, we're,
1: if we're speaking in specifics
0: <laughs> i noticed it sounds like you call the justice system the criminal legal system instead is that am i right on that
2: i mean when you say criminal justice system it implies that this is a system that deals criminals justice it doesn't do that it is a criminal legal system it is a, a system that Attempts to hold criminals accountable for their actions. And even in that sense, it doesn't live up to the name. A lot of folks refer to it as the criminal legal system because that's just what it is. It's just a legal system that ensures that the laws are, I guess, executed. I mean, I'm assuming that they feel that they are, you know, dispensing justice, but they're not dispensing justice. They're only dispensing legalese. The law says this. And so because the law says this, I'm going to send you away for the rest of your life, or I'm going to send you away for a period of time. So it's not dispensing justice, because if it was dispensing justice, then you would try to get to the root cause of the problem. Like many individuals are coming in front of these judges and these prosecutors. Yes, they've made mistakes. They've given into indiscretion. But let's get to the root cause of why people are doing the things that they are doing. Like, why is someone getting a gun and going to rob someone? Why is someone selling drugs? Like, why is someone harming other human beings? Like, ask those type of questions instead of applying textbook knowledge to the situation. Like, most judges and prosecutors have never been inside of a jail cell, have never been inside of a prison setting, but they sitting on the bench... And behind a desk saying who should go to prison and who should go to jail, like at the very least, put yourself in their shoes and understand what it is that they're going to get. From these environments that you're sending them to for a long period of time, understand that, you know, they are under the influence of a substance or alcohol because they may be going through the def- divorce proceedings. Their children may hate them. They themselves may be a-, a previous victim of a crime and they have not received any type of mental health treatment that is saying to them, hey, nothing is wrong with you. The saying often goes that bad things don't happen to good people. So when something bad happens to you, you're like, oh, I'm bad. I can't be good. Bad things don't happen to good people. So that may be a mental process that people are going through. They may be really in in dire need of help, of support. And if they're not getting that, guess what? They perpetuate what was perpetrated against them. Hurt people hurt people. And so prosecutors, judges, and folks in the legal field have to ask the right questions to get to the bottom of what is happening What is leading these people to come in their courtrooms as a result of the behaviors and actions that they've taken on other human beings?
1: You know, that really like leads into another point that I want to hear your thoughts on, which is we always hear about how overwhelmed the system is, how overwhelmed state appointed defense attorneys are and and public defenders and you know right down to like a a a small town police station just so overwhelmed with all of the all of the cases and everything that's coming in that they just can't keep up what you're saying there is there's a reason for all of this and if we try to understand the reason where's the bridge between those two
2: we look back at history i want to say the 70s we had a lot of mental health facilities when people had issues they were sent to these mental health facilities to receive some form of treatment. As we move into the 80s, the the crack war, and into the 90s, and this whole tough on crime narrative, this whole war on drug narrative, this whole war on young people, the criminal legal system has become the new mental health facilities. The response to societal ills is to put them in prison. (laughs) It's put them in prison. Incapacitation. Incapacitation. It's not figuring out, you know, why people are doing the things that they are doing that goes against societal norms. It's, oh, this is what you did. Okay, we're going to send you to prison. We're not going to ask the relevant questions that's going to get to why you are behaving in the way that you are behaving. We're not going to try to figure out your deviancy. We're not, we're not trying to figure out the deviant behavior that you're engaged in. We're just saying, lock them up and throw away the key. That is the reason why the prisons are overflowing. The courts are overwhelmed. It's because for every societal ill, the response is, is to criminalize it. It's not to treat it as an illness. It's not to diagnose and provide a treatment plan. It's to diagnose as Deviant behavior in the response to deviant behavior is criminalization for a period of time. And that's why the system is overwhelmed for those reasons, unfortunately. The new mental health facilities are the Department of, quote unquote, corrections, because, again, the very name Department of Corrections implies that corrective measures are being employed to redirect individuals from their deviant behavior. But that's not happening.
1: And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors.
0: Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program.
1: Now, wouldn't it be more beneficial for a government or a society or or a nation to want to rehabilitate their citizens and make sure that they are coming out from their indiscretion They're coming out a better person or a more adjusted person who can help themselves and help others so that the remainder of the community can benefit from this. Maybe they could get a decent job. They can contribute to the economy. Why is that like a hard conversation to have with people who can make that decision?
2: Because the criminal legal system looks upon people who come through it as disposable. Not only does this system look upon people as disposable, we have to also keep in mind that this is a system that is rooted in racism. This is a system that came about from the 13th Amendment that said neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist in these United States, except as a punishment for a crime. And so essentially, if you commit a crime in these United States, you become a slave. We don't call the 2.3 million people who are currently incarcerated in this country slaves because that wouldn't sit well with society. Because people will say, wait, slaves? We abolished slavery with the 13th Amendment over 100 plus years ago. You mean to tell me that we, one of the most sophisticated countries in the world, we have slaves? My response to that will be absolutely because the 13th Amendment says this, like this is what Americans have to really understand is that you can put lipstick on a pig, but it is still a pig. And that's why when we look at Europe and the way that they do corrections, we see a more humane system in comparison to our own. When we look at the data, and we're a country that is very big on data, we are 5% of the world's population, but we incarcerate 25% of our people. It doesn't make sense. And that is why so many of our policymakers, elected officials, advocates are going to Europe doing tours of those facilities to see how their correctional system functions and what they are taking away from those visits are it's not a closet like setting with a concrete bunk and a 1 inch mattress it doesn't have a steel toilet in a steel bowl for a sink and the mirror isn't a buffed out piece of metal like it looks like a bedroom. (laughs) They're able to look out the window and see humans walking by the facility. They're able to see cars drive by the facility. They are not looking up at gun towers and correctional officers holding rifles ready to shoot. That's not what quote-unquote inmates or incarcerated individuals see in prisons in Europe. In some prisons in Europe, that may be the case, but Norway is an example that I would throw out there. That's not what what people are seeing over there. And the way that they do corrections over there, it makes us look bad. It makes us look like we're a third world country. And so that's why Our people are going over there to do these visits and to, you know, come away with something that can improve the system here in America, because the system here in America is inhumane, is dehumanizing. When I was in prison, whenever I went on a visit, I got pat down. When I came off of a visit, I had to strip down, butt naked, turn around, squat, cough, arms up, turn around, spread your cheeks. Like, come on. Like really, like you're putting me through this dehumanization after I just got done experiencing a moment of joy with my family. You stripped that joy from me by making me feel like nothing because you're under some impression a false impression that my family has passed me something that can disrupt the normal functions of this prison. Come on, man. And I understand the system rebuttal. Oh, we're making sure that weapons aren't brought into the facility. We're making sure that drugs aren't brought into the facility. We're making sure that all of the things under the sun that can cause us harm and disrupt the normal functions of this facility is not coming into the institution. But guess what? You won't have to worry about those things. If you treated people humanely, people are getting drugs into the prisons. Guess why? Because you're not addressing the mental health. So they're trying to take drugs to further suppress that pain. They're making hooch out of bread and fermented juice. Like, Why do people have to go through those lengths to escape their current reality if you, the Department of Corrections, are addressing those things.
0: I think what you mentioned about uh, visiting Europe, sort of learning from what they're doing over there is a, is a great place to start. But what about Like substance abuse programs or programs on getting past trauma, um, maybe critical thinking. I mean, these are things that have come up in in just in this conversation now that could lead people to commit crimes and end up in prison. Where do we start with all that?
2: So in prison, they, they have those programs, but it's more nominal than anything. I went to a critical, they used to call it CGIP, Cognitive Group Intervention Program, which teaches you how to think critically. You know what they do in those programs? Here, Tim, here's a 10-page packet. I want you to answer these questions and bring them back to me, the facilitator of this program. And we may or we may not have a conversation. And something like that goes on for 12 weeks, once a week, 30 Forty-five minutes, maybe even an hour. It's all about checking a box. You know, that's all it is. It's checking a box, and so the programs that they have aren't effective because the approach is wrong. In the broader movement in this country around criminal justice reform, Glenn Martin, who is a national criminal justice reform advocate and leader in the, in, in this space, he coined the phrase where he said that those who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but the furthest away from the power and the resources to bring about the change that they seek. What he means by that is that if you want solutions, have conversations with those who are proximate to the issues that you're attempting to address. If you two are my best friend, I know you two have a podcast. You do this shit every day. You have conversations with thousands of people. And here I am, your friend. And I don't have a conversation with you about how to get started into a podcast, how to you know, formulate questions, how to prepare. But I jump into the podcast business and I screw up a whole bunch of stuff. But you two would probably say to yourself, like, this dumbass Sean, he knows we have a podcast, and if he wanted to know how to start, all he had to do was have a conversation with us. That We would have saved him thousands of dollars in the heartache, in the embarrassment. If they really want to solve the problem, all they got to do is have conversations with individuals who have gone through the system and have developed an an analysis. Not just any analysis, but an analysis that makes sense an analysis that put forth innovative solutions but having that conversation with us really challenges their long held beliefs it disrupts tradition and it in a way begins to chip away at the profit that these prisons and the system at large makes As a result of sending people to prison so they're not going to have a conversation with us about how they can improve programming in prison they're not going to have a a conversation with us about how can we tackle this issue at the front end so people aren't even coming in front of you know the courts they're not going to have that conversation with us they're not going to go into the communities that are high crime and say hey How can we begin to reduce crime in your neighborhood? They're not going to go and have a conversation with the person that is doing opioids and say, hey, how can we get this monkey off your back? They're, They're not doing that. They're just locking people away.
1: Yeah, It's bad business if they do that.
2: It's bad business if they do that. Perfect. That's, that's
1: it. I remember when I first heard that a for-profit prison was a thing. And it just blew my mind that that would be a thing. I'm going to do my best to articulate this question or point. You just mentioned violent communities. Who else has this responsibility to go into a community and make it better? And I'm thinking, like, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but like food deserts, right? Yeah. People don't have access to proper food, proper nutrition, which affects their health, which affects the way that they go about their day-to-day. Who else is responsible to make things better in these communities?
2: I would say the local government. I think as constituents and as voters, we only pay attention to the presidential elections. We don't pay attention to the local elections. These are the judges, the prosecutors, the um, school board. This is the county supervisors. These are all of the people who make the decisions that affect our everyday life. These are the people who give liquor stores and corner stores and grocery stores permits and, 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 and licenses to open up shop in these communities. And so ask the relevant questions of these business owners, like what type of food are you selling to these people? And then not only what type of food are you selling to these people, but where's the balance? Like, okay, we're going to allocate, you know, licensing for 10% corner stores, 10% whole food-like stores, and we can begin to tackle the food desert crisis that are present in a lot of these communities. And so I would say local government has a responsibility, and, 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 and I do not want the community to have to skirt or not take responsibility as well. I want the community to also take responsibility. So the community is also responsible. They're responsible and they should be involved in the electoral process. They should know who they're electing and putting into office and whether or not these people have their best interests at heart. They should be asking these folks the tough questions and should not be moved by a speech that has all of this flowery language that rises up their emotions, they shouldn't be moved by that shit. Like, ask these people the questions that need to be asked that's going to improve your quality of life. And that is not happening. So I will definitely say the community has a great responsibility here. And in addition to them having that responsibility, oftentimes they don't even know where to begin. And so you have advocates such as myself that go into these communities and have these type of conversations to ensure that they are asking the right, um, right conversations of these leaders who are asking for their vote. I live in a pretty diverse community, and I can tell you right now, there's no corner stores where I live. There's no gas stations with shit plastered all on the window that you can't even see through. The roads are well paved. The lawns are well kept. Everyone in the community understands that in order to maintain this, we have to make sure that there are people in position that listens to what it is that we want them to do and understands that if they don't do that, that we're going to hold them accountable. However, you go 10, 20 miles away from where you currently live, into marginalized communities or um, uh, disadvantaged communities, you have the same people who want the same thing in these communities but don't know how to advocate for themselves the way that this community 10 miles away advocate for themselves. And so you experience a community with food deserts, lack of adequate healthcare, inability to you know get from point A to point B because there's fucking potholes Every <laughs> every car length away. Let me hop off my my my, my soapbox and um, <laughs> you know let you get to the next question. I, I went on a tangent there.
0: <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you to get right back on that soapbox. What is your vision of the um, the criminal legal system?
2: I dream of a world beyond mass incarceration, poverty, and pollution. And this is the dream that my organization has and believes, and are working towards every day. Like we have a group of committed individuals who are passionate about all of the issues that we work on. We all are proximate to the very issues that we are trying to bring about transformational change. We are a diverse group of individuals come from various backgrounds, race, ethnicities, and experiences. We come from all over the country but we are united by that dream. And that dream looks like a society that does not criminalize the societal ills that we're faced with. It looks like a society that people don't have to go out their house and put a mask on because the air quality is terrible. It looks like a society where individuals understand and is not being manipulated by you know, the tech sector, or they have access to the tech sector. Like we're moving into the future or we have moved into the future, but only a few people are being brought along. And so we want to, we're an organization that wants everyone to be brought along. We're an organization that understands that this table is big enough for everyone. I don't give a damn if the table is the small, the size of, you know, a gnat. And that's pretty small, (laughs) you know, but it's big enough for everyone. It's big enough for everyone to contribute because at the end of the day, we all want life, liberty, and the opportunity to pursue happiness. We all want that. It doesn't matter where we come from. We all want to be able to provide for ourselves, our families, our children, and the next generation that is coming after us. That's what we want. But we have these divisive politicians, these divisive advocates that are out here who are continuing to sow dissension that is causing us to be at one another's throat. And there's so much stuff that is happening as we are at one another's throat that we're unaware of. And so if we can just put our small differences to the side and come together and say, hey, you want a quality life. You want to be happy. You want to pursue happiness. I want that. So let's work together from that common thread. This is our common ground. So let's work from that point forward. And not pay attention to the things that devise us because before when you when you finally realize it, you will say we were arguing about this. This is what caused us to not sit down and have a conversation. And we will say to ourselves, like, how stupid, you know, how stupid are we that we allow this small ideological disagreement cause us to not even have a conversation?
1: And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors.
0: Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program.
1: And you had said that we're kind of at each other and and people who aren't in the position to sign off on these laws, people who aren't in government are at each other and and the people who are in the position to actually make the history, right? So the lawmakers and and the policymakers, they're there and they're making this happen. And are you saying it's like there's a distraction going on so that these dealings can happen and then... In the meantime, we we didn't realize like, oh, now we have to deal with all of these things that have been put in place that we didn't notice because we were arguing.
2: Because we was arguing. That's it right there. You said it perfectly, Lance. Oh, you said that's it perfectly. The- I just
1: <laughs> I, I just needed to put it into my into, in, into my dense, denser uh, way of thinking.
2: But 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 that's the thing. Like, I mean, like, so I'll say it out my mouth. And, and that's, that's the thing that happens. Like we, 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 we say things out of our mouth and what you just said is what I meant, but we are a country that takes snippets of what people say. And we only put that out there. And that causes so much division. When you see it yourself, you like, I didn't say that shit. Like the way that they're, <laughs> the way that they, <laughs> they're putting it out there. I didn't say, I didn't, that's not what I meant. But it's too late because media has taken it and manipulated it and put it out there. And now you have so many people from this side against you. And they don't even want to have a conversation with you because they're like, oh, you believe this. You believe that. It happens so often. And so what we have to do is we just got to pause, quiet the noise, and listen to one another. We're not saying, those of us who are working to reduce the footprint of mass incarceration in this country, we're not saying, hey, people should get away scot-free for the crimes that they engage in. We're not saying that. Everyone should be held accountable for any indiscretion that they give into, but they should be held accountable in a humane and restorative manner and not this punitive Criminalization, the humanizing manner that this current system deals with our people. That's not how we should do things. And that is how we're doing it because we're at one another's throat. And so, any opportunity that I can sit down with someone who comes from a different background, who has different experiences as myself, I'm more than happy to sit down and have that conversation because, at the end of the day, the greatest thing in the world is understanding. And if I understand you and you understand me, guess what? We're both growing, we're both prospering, and we're both being a value add to one another's life. Because as long as I understand you and you understand me, there's no misunderstandings. There's no reason for me to be at your neck and you to be at my neck.
1: And it's an even better opportunity for people to have a conversation that's uncomfortable otherwise. And if yep. you understand each other, you're able to understand we can go into this territory, but we're not going to come out enemies, even if we don't agree on the other side. we'll still respect each other
2: absolutely It
1: seems so simple, doesn't it
2: It seems so simple <laughs> It seems so simple, man, but it's very it's very complex you know when when you really sit back and 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 give a lot more thought to it it's it's more it's more complex, although it seems. Very simple. And it has become complex because, you know, uh, the wool has been pulled over our eyes.
0: You mentioned dream.org a little bit earlier. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, dream.org and your work with them?
2: Absolutely. So we're a national nonprofit. We were founded eight years ago by CNN commentator Van Jones. We're working nationally within the climate sector, within the tech sector, and also within the criminal justice reform sector. My role as the organizing director is more in the criminal justice reform space or program. And what we're doing is we're building nationwide capacity to pass legislation at the local, state, and federal level. And the way we do that is by really exemplifying and being intentional to the Quote from Glenn Martin that those who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but furthest from the power and the resources to change their condition. And so we work to ensure that formerly incarcerated individuals who wants to reduce the footprint of mass incarceration at the local, state and federal level have the tools and the resources to do just that. And so we train directly impacted leaders, indirectly impacted leaders, and indirectly is just someone who hasn't necessarily spent time in prison or spent time in jail, but may have a family member friend who's currently or formerly incarcerated, but they just want to see a change within the system. So we train them or we get them tools to how to organize, how to understand legislation, how to share their story, how to interact with the media, like we give them all of these tools so that they can take it and apply it in building out a campaign to, for example, ban the box or create opportunities for second chance hiring. And so you all know or have heard that on the box, they ask, "Have you ever been convicted of a felony?" And if you check yes, that automatically you know excludes you from getting a job. And so we have advocates who are working to do away with that type of questioning on the job application. We're training them on how to successfully win those type of campaigns as a result of us as a national organization on the federal level, successfully passing legislation that has reduced the footprint of mass incarceration within the federal system, within the bureau of Prisons. Our organization was very instrumental in getting a piece of legislation passed called the First Step Act. That is a piece of legislation that was passed, I would say, around 2018, 2019. This was a piece of legislation that had a great deal of bipartisan um, support. People from both sides of the aisle came together and agreed that this piece of legislation was necessary. And to date, it has brought home in return over... 25 human beings back to their families, their communities, and society at large. This is the type of legislation that we're working on within our organization. We're currently working to pass a piece of legislation called the EQUAL Act. This is a piece of legislation that gets rid of the disparity between crack and powder cocaine. Thousands of individuals who have been sentenced disproportionately in comparison to their white counterparts, who were caught in possession of crack cocaine and their counterparts were caught with powder cocaine. There's pharmacologically, there's no difference between the two. (laughs) There's no difference between the two. The only difference is that, you know, white people are more inclined to using powder cocaine and black people are more inclined to crack cocaine. And so there's a disparity in the sentencing of the two. And so we're trying to level the playing field to -to one-to-one so that everyone receives the same sentence for the same quantity of drugs that they are caught in possession with.
1: Really can't thank you enough for coming on as we're wrapping up this it's already been almost an hour and I think Tim and I could go on for at least <laughs> at least another couple of hours with this. We have another show called Missing and we work with a nonprofit that helps provide investigative services to families of lesser means to locate individuals that are in their families who are missing and the show Missing that we host we often take stories of missing individuals from marginalized communities and we always end up saying during inevitably during one of these episodes what is a community doing how is how is a community a part of the story if a detail is it's an abusive boyfriend or it's an abusive parent or there's something going on there it's not just happening in that small bubble there's a larger issue there so we would love to have you back on if you ever want to come back on to talk about that a little bit more in depth because we always want to try to get closer to that answer
2: And as you were talking I was just talking I was just thinking about the intersection between people going missing, being kidnapped by other human beings. That's the same thing that is happening with our criminal legal system. The criminal legal system is kidnapping people. People are going missing. And the reason why I say that, Lance, because I often say whenever I'm giving talks is that I disappeared from a Milwaukee neighborhood over 20 years ago. I often say I was kidnapped as a 17-year-old kid. I was a kid. I was a kid and I disappeared. Now, I've ran into several of my classmates in high school, football um, teammates and track teammates, who when they see me, they always say, whatever happened to you? Where did you go? One minute you were here, and the next minute you were gone. That's the same thing that is happening with individuals who go missing as a result of someone kidnapping them. The infamous stories that are out there that everyone knows about in this country, from Utah to Iowa, of people disappearing and going missing and then coming back on the scene 10, 20, 30 years later as a result of getting free from their kidnapper and saying, hey, This man, this woman, these people took me out of my bedroom and they cut my hair and they changed my appearance. And I was moving about society and I wanted to scream, hey, these aren't my family members. But I knew if I did that, no one would believe me and I can possibly lose my life. In addition, I was brainwashed to think that they had my best interest at heart. The the parallels between that are striking. They're striking.
0: Sean, thank you so much for spending some time with us here today. We really appreciate it. Great conversation. I I feel like we learned a lot here.
2: Absolutely. I, I really appreciate you guys asking the questions that you asked. I, I really appreciate just how smooth the both of you are. You know, you guys are some, some cool dudes, didn't seem forced, and, and I hope that, you know, I gave your listening audience not only something to think about, but also Uh, inclination to get involved, because more than anything, we need more people involved and more people asking questions of our elected officials at the local and federal level of what it is that they're doing about the 2.3 million individuals who are currently incarcerated and the more than 600,000 people who are coming home from prison. Like, what are you doing? Ninety five percent of people incarcerated will return to our community and we need to be um, preparing for their return so that they reintegrate successfully.
1: There's nothing I'm going to say that is going to be better than that so I feel like